Welcome to the MedTech Talk podcast. This is your host, Jeff Pardo, and I'm very excited to welcome this month's guest, Andy Doraswamy. Andy has built a remarkable career that's seen him transition from science and academic research into entrepreneurship, where he's been a part of many successful ventures, starting in the ophthalmology world. His most recent venture is as CEO of Koya Medical, which is pioneering, pioneering a new therapy for lymphedema, which is, as we'll find out, a very personal mission for Andy. However, we'll also discuss some of Andy's experiences outside of business and entrepreneurship that have had a key role in shaping his perspective and approach to leadership. Andy, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Jeff, uh, thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, so, you know, there's a lot to get into here. You've really had a fascinating career, and it's shaped by a lot of different things, I know. But starting out, I always like to understand a little bit about uh, about people in our industry and their personal stories. So if I may, could you tell us a little bit about how you grew up? Where did you grow up? But what could we find the young Andy Doraswamy doing? <laughs> um, it's a great question. Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, I think uh, the foundational aspects of all of our lives are very relevant to who we become and who we develop at the end of the day. So my journey started off uh, halfway across the planet. Uh, in uh, the southern part of India is where I was born, in a place called Palghat in Kerala. So my dad uh, is a civil engineer. He worked for the Indian Railways uh, back in the day, uh, in the 70s and 80s. Um, that generation typically worked for the government. So he joined, uh, had great pride, was a fantastic engineer, and he kept moving places. So we grew up within India. Uh, some of the childhood was also spent in Malaysia and Singapore, a lot of early exposure to a variety of different things. So that had a foundational uh, beginning for me. Are there some particular memories you have of growing up uh, in, in those places? Uh, yeah, I think uh, one of the major um, you know, lucky breaks that I had, quite frankly, is uh, to, to be born to um, great parents that have the right uh, values, uh, but also the right uh, mindset of curiosity. You know, I think um, the very stereotypic uh, middle-class Indian family, um, you know, I think very humble beginnings in that sense, but their focus was always on education uh, from the very early days, the curiosity and drive that curiosity uh, from the beginning. So whether it's uh, science, engineering, math, uh, whatever it is, I think there's a strong bias to education. So I was quite lucky to have that uh, ecosystem growing up. And following the, the early experiences in Asia, did you move to, to the U.S.? Or where, where, did you, where did you move to next? Yeah, the, the States, I think, uh, was a great break. I think um, I came here for my education uh, started off with the University of Arizona, Tucson, uh, to pursue a degree in uh, material science and engineering. You know, I became a chemical engineer uh, with a great sense of uh, building things. You know, ever since I was a kid, uh, Jeff, um, I would take things apart really well, like the TV, the VCR, everything will be out and uh, <laughs> eventually put it back together um, <laughs> to the annoyance of my family, of course, right? <laughs> Uh, my sister is a physician, so I think that had a strong pull for me uh, to also be involved uh, in medicine. Uh, that had a great influence some from my childhood days. Um, I couldn't be a doctor. I think that I don't have the memory skills needed. So engineering was naturally gravitating uh, to, to that direction. So Arizona, University of Arizona, Tucson is where I first landed with a couple of suitcases and signed up for that program. Great program, and then subsequently got deeper and deeper into med tech. And and before we get into more of the career aspects, you uh, know, in, in, and I'd be curious if this also stemmed from growing up in in Indian and um, and other places. But you, you developed a real interest, and you have a real interest in in mountaineering. Uh, tell us how that developed. Yeah, that was, uh, it, quite frankly, uh, completely serendipitous. It wasn't like I was uh, chasing anything. Um, it came from realizing that I needed to self-evaluate. So after my uh, master's degree in, uh, from Tucson, 
I re refuse to interview for jobs or pursue uh, further education. I wanted to take a break. Uh, as crazy as that may sound, I think to most most of my academic advisors were shocked that I was doing this. But um, I saved about $4,000 or so back in the day, and I thought that would be enough to go find myself. So I basically bought a one-way ticket to uh, to the Indian subcontinent, Southeast Asia, and traveled. I bought an old motorcycle, restored, uh, restored it, rode across India, an old Java, um, an old Russian imitation <laughs> of a motorcycle. So <laughs> I did that and landed in a place uh, up in Darjeeling, in the northeast of India, where there was a sign that said, uh, you know, do you want to be a mountaineer? And there's a Himalayan Mountaineering Institute. And I said, mm -hmm. sure, why not? You know, I have the time. <laughs> Might as well sign up. And did that. And uh, I didn't realize it was training with the, with the military folks for that uh, northeastern part of India, where India meets Nepal. And and uh, spent the next three, four months in the mountain. I couldn't get out of it. And I think completely transformative, both... Uh, physically, emotionally, and, and just who I became after that. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? I mean, what, I mean it sounds like it, just an unbelievable experience, but what, what, how did it impact you? Uh, I think uh, what, what ended up happening was, uh, quite frankly, um, this, uh, it's almost like the old self uh, was shedded and a new self was born. Uh, because uh, through those three, four months of being out in the wild and uh, learning how to be in extreme conditions, physically incredibly strenuous and mentally torturous um, and emotionally you're on your own, uh, allowed, you know, I think you can either collapse by it or you can uh, sort of thrive in it. In my case, I ended up thriving in it where um, I was able to understand and push my own boundaries in every way possible. So I think uh, that was pretty transformative in that sense. I think one needs to experience it to understand uh, what I'm talking about. Yeah. And you ended up climbing s several mountains, right? Several of the tallest mountains. Is there, is there a couple that stand out in your mind? Yeah, I did. Um, you know, I have a few friends that I climb with these days, not as frequently, but it used to be every year. Um, I think the one that stands out uh, distinctly is uh Mount Aconcagua, which is in the South American uh, Mendoza region, uh, just a phenomenal mountain. And uh, we did that over uh, two weeks, uh, expedition style, just uh, slowly making our way to the top. Uh, that was uh, that, that was a humbling experience. Mm. Amazing. And I can't imagine what your parents were thinking at this time with you on a motorcycle and <laughs> at least when you were uh, training training for this and then uh, and then ending up with the military. I mean, what, what was their reaction? Uh, they didn't, you know, kudos to them. They didn't say anything, uh, but I'm sure the emotions that they were going through was like, this, this boy's lost it. <laughs> but uh, no, they didn't question it. So then, yes. So then, what happens next? You come come back and t tell us how you sort of transition from what was just uh, an incredibly, uh, as you said, transformative experience. And what do you do next after this? Yeah, I think everybody everybody needs a few few breaks and in, uh, in, in their lives. And uh, my, mine came early uh, when I came back from that mountain. I was uh, sitting in a in a small tea shop, uh, drinking a cup of tea. And back in the day, you had to uh, pay for internet uh, in these internet cafes. And I was checking my email and I got the news that I was accepted uh, for my PhD uh, at Georgia Tech, uh, which was just, I was you know already in high altitude. I think I was already uh, climbing high. So I think I had a great sense of purpose uh, when I knew that this was my calling, right? Being in uh, healthcare, and uh, the PhD was in biomedical engineering, and subsequently I transferred to uh, UNC Chapel Hill. But both those two universities and the research that I had done um, just only cemented my uh, my intent and focus in healthcare. And and it seems like you at that point are you gravitating towards ophthalmology, or are you doing a variety of different things? What 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 was your fo focus at that stage? 
Yeah, Jeff, if I jog back my memory, I think it's a, it feels like a lifetime ago, but uh, it was very unique uh, PhD uh, experience in the sense that uh, the doctoral work involved uh, application uh, of, of new ideas, as well as uh, collaboration with external uh, universities and institutions. Very unique setting. And I uh, thank my advisor for uh, for giving me that opportunity. So we did a lot of work with Laser Zentrum Hanover in Germany, uh, spent time there. Uh, also got a climber to go climb Mont Blanc while I was there. But um, separately, a lot of experience with the U.S. Naval Research Lab ended up spending a good uh, year off and on, um, which gave me cutting edge uh you know, involvement in laser physics, essentially use of different types of lasers and how they interact with uh, the body, uh, different materials, and became became somewhat of an expert uh, in that area. And within that, I think I had some exposure to ophthalmology. Uh, separately, ironically, I also saw a cataract surgery a camp while I was in Nepal climbing. So I think uh, there was a lot of exposure to eye care for sure. Yeah, interesting. And maybe uh, you know, I've always sort of wondered or theorized about this. I mean, we see a lot of innovation in biotech coming out of universities uh, and university research. In in med tech, uh, so this is meant to be sort of a provocative question, but med tech, I would argue that that there's that a lot of the stuff in the university setting doesn't necessarily make it into companies. Um, I wonder if you agree or disagree with that. And, you know, the the innovations in the medical device side of things, uh, you know, seem to more come from, you know, people who are already practicing in an area and they have a better idea. But do you agree or disagree? And and if you agree, why is it that the stuff happening in, in university settings often seems to stay there And when we think about medical device development? Yeah, I think that's a brilliant, insightful uh, thought and question. Um, you know, my obviously my experience with the academic setting is a long, uh, outdated, I think. <laughs> but um, but at least from my experience, then I think part of what drove it was uh, how it was funded through the NIH and various organizations that fund it. So there was a, the incentive wasn't quite there for. Uh, ideas and and research to necessarily make that transition, um, and and the education wasn't there, the exposure wasn't there, uh, which was part of the reason Jeff, uh, I moved to the industry, right, and I wanted that application, the the hunger and the thirst for that idea to to make an impact is sort of what drove me into um, into the corporate commercial setting, uh, as opposed to staying in academia. Uh, I think these days. I think more folks are bridging that gap. Uh, there's a lot of uh, application-oriented programs that are coming across uh, different universities. Uh, the success of that remains to be seen, but I think people are paying more attention to that yeah. uh, today, I think. Interesting. So maybe talk a little bit about, about ophthalmology, how you sort of landed in ophthalmology. And, and I know along the way you met someone that's very influential in that industry. So curious to sort of understand that that transition why ophthalmology and and uh yeah t- take it from there yeah yeah i care as you know uh you know i think i've got a huge bias and love uh, for eye care uh the the eye the the sense organ is uh, how we perceive the world um arguably one of the more important sense organs right and it's so complex uh, within the eye there's a whole universe within the eye um, my exposure to the cataract camp, uh, perhaps the application of lasers in, uh, in, in innovating in eye care. Everybody's familiar with LASIK and eczema lasers have been used. I think there was a natural bias that was pulling me in. And as luck would have it, I think this was my second uh, lucky break, is I found uh, an opportunity which was a Bill Link back company uh, in Santa Barbara, of all places. So moving there was... <laughs> Not much of a decision, but I think mainly it was a building back company had the right uh, folks, right leaders in place, and they needed, um, it essentially was an early stage company. They needed uh, essentially someone with a biomaterials background and application to bring a new material to a class three PMA. And that mm-hmm. was my role. So I started off in R&D and given my background, was able to take 
uh, a novel material and a novel intraocular lens to treat a cataract surgery. Uh, it's a two-minute procedure, life-changing, life-enabling. Uh, very lucky to have had that break. And the opportunity found me. I found it. It was just a, a perfect match. Yeah. And and did you get a chance to work closely with Bill Link? What was what was that like? I mean, he's really a kind of a, you know such an influential figure in 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 our industry and in ophthalmology in particular. What 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 was what was that interaction like? Uh, I think it was a phenomenal, uh, fortunate, and uh, that a young age for me to have uh, exposure was uh, was great. I mean, for those that may not know, I think Bill. Uh, uh, one of the key industry makers in eye care, uh, quite frankly, right? And uh, he started Burson Ventures and uh, very active in eye care. Uh, he also was uh, in the academic setting. He was an associate professor, I believe, at Purdue uh, before he made that switch. Mm. And even that was with an idea uh, that he had along with an ophthalmologist. So to me, I think uh, early days, highly impressionable. And I think he had a very strong impression on me and not only the ability to dream big and and make impact happen, but also in how he conducted himself. I think if you if you've gotten to know him, an absolute class act, right? And how you treat people and how you bring together people. No, that's fascinating. And 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 I'm curious as you move from from uh, you know being in a university setting into the uh, more of the industry and entrepreneurship. What, what were the key challenges or the, uh, the key adjustments you had to make, or, or, or was it was it pretty seamless? Uh, to me, uh, to, to me, quite frankly, it was seamless because uh, I was very hungry, um, and I was uh, had plenty of energy to come in to learn. And I think my role there with uh, a small team we had. I was very much uh, like a startup, uh, high energy, a lot of momentum type environment. So we, for me, the adjustment was easy, uh, but also there was a tremendous uh, impactful role in that uh, I could, with my team and my peers, really take an idea and quickly do the design, quickly do the testing, see the results in front of you, uh, take it through the clinical first-in-class PMA, so it's a very rewarding uh, experience in the sense that you know the energy you put in and the effort you put in has uh, a very positive validation that you see uh, firsthand. Yeah, and you and you chose well, right? Uh, this was advanced vision uh, sciences, advanced advanced vision science, and it was acquired, correct? That is correct. Yeah, AVS, uh, which was formerly Sergi Dev, uh, which was uh, an old intraocular lens company that used to make uh, polymethylmethacrylate. So the innovation and the impact here was it was a hydrophobic acrylic material. Uh, without getting lost in the details, uh, the point was it went through a very very small incision. It would fold like a taco, and go through a very small incision. So minimally invasive uh, was the advantage without, without needing suture to seal the you know, wound when you implant. So it's a beautiful lens that sort of stayed clear for uh, more than uh, 30 plus years. It needs to be clear, right? Mm. And cannot cloud. So we had that label from FDA as well, the first in class to do that. Uh, very difficult uh, and important uh, innovation in, uh, in all of MedTech. Uh, so was lucky to have that opportunity to see it through from an idea all the way to commercialization. Uh, Santin Pharmaceuticals, a large uh, Japanese uh, eye firm, acquired it and uh, left it alone. So I ended up running that business uh, on the U.S. side, which was great. Um, great exposure on growth as well. And uh, beyond that, we also did a licensing uh, deal with uh, Bosch and Lom, uh, who were independent back then. So now it's their flagship lens called uh, Invista. Mm. And it has treated over uh, 6 million, I think, 6 million Americans mm. alone. So the impact is uh, there for, for for us to see, those who are involved yeah. with it. And, yeah, so it was just a very, I'm very grateful for all this. So I, it's a, a real privilege. Yeah, it's one of the most gratifying things in our our business, right, is that, we, you know, things can come to market uh, within, you know, a reasonable amount of time and you can see the impact 
that that the, the products have. Uh, so so that's that's amazing. And and so 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 then take us back. Then you're you're then running the U.S. business, but you decide to go back uh, into the startup side. Why why decide to go uh, move back into a startup at that point? Yeah, once again, I think the opportunity found me. And uh, one of my former colleague and a very dear friend, uh, Dan Hamilton, uh, who pretends to be retired, but he's still <laughs> very much active, um, instead of had the, he was with this uh, early stage company uh, that was innovating in dry eye disease. So a new area, front of the eye, um, which I didn't have a whole lot of exposure to, but obviously dry eye disease is a huge, huge problem, right? Um, age-related and uh, drugs like Restasis and Zydra uh, try to solve this. It's a huge uh, economic burden as well. And the opportunity with uh, when Dan called me and said, you know, you ought to look at this. Uh, it's a very exciting opportunity that is uh, spin out out of Stanford Biodesign with Bill on the board and uh, Brooke Byers from, in, from uh, KPCB and uh, NEA had invested in it too. So Part of the growth that I had left is uh, more exposure to the uh, VC-backed early stage, uh, broader opportunities. So it was a very sort of a difficult decision in a sense because you're leaving a comfortable role, uh, but it was an easy decision because the growth was sort of seeking you, right? So I think the choice ultimately was easy. So I moved here to to be the COO there and uh, run operations for Oculive. And 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 now you're you know you've sort of fully having come out of AVS and now into Oculive you've you know you've for sort of fully shed uh, I guess the the academic or maybe not fully is that's probably the wrong word but <laughs> have start you know shed probably a lot of the academic and you're really now in industry and a leader what what do you feel yourself about you know your leadership style how would you describe that and 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 in particular. As you think about your own experiences, both in mountaineering, I know meditation is also really important within your life. I mean, how, how does that all shape you as a leader, and and how do you start to put that into practice as you, you know, the higher up that you move within, you know, your career and in these companies? Yeah, I mean, it's a once again a very insightful and important uh, question. Uh, for me, the move. Uh, was uh, initially it was a handful of folks, right? It's like a you can less than uh, double digits, and uh, you're all evolving together. Momentum is high, um, and leadership uh, style and need of the two companies are different. And you you asked about shedding the academic side. I think I'll always be a curious scientist uh, ultimately, right? I think that's the core of how I see the world. Uh, that curiosity won't die, which. Is actually quite, uh, quite frankly, the driver for, for uh, yearning and and knowing, and I think that's where leadership for me is the lens in which I look at things. Is what is the problem that needs to be solved for the ecosystem you're operating in, and hence what is your role in solving that, right? And the different processes and the different uh, methods you apply really depend on the stage and ecosystem of the. Uh, situation you're in. So I think the leadership style is one that is very flexible and one that looks at it uh, in a fairly objective manner, right? Uh, more empowering, more trusting to begin with, uh, with the people and let them independently run it and counsel you in what needs to be done. Yeah. I'm also curious, I mean, because you've had, I mean, you've had such, you know, fascinating experiences yourself and in particular where you've you've actually climbed mountains and you've pushed yourself you know physically and emotionally in your role as a leader when you have gone through that sort of experience but but the people you're leading don't necessarily have that uh in their background how do you how do you get the most out of them how do you sort of get them to perform beyond their bounds because i imagine in your you know in climbing mountains you are often forced to do what you may may not have thought you could do and and do you bring any of that to your leadership style and how do you how do you get people to that you're leading to sort of think like that yeah i think uh, ultimately 
it's 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 not only that uh, you when you climb mountains, for example, right? It's not that you expect things that uh, that are unexpected in a way, uh, but you you almost seek it. You seek you seek discomfort, right? You seek challenging situations for yourself. Mm. Uh, if it was easy, and if uh, if someone put an escalator all the way to the top, then the charm isn't quite there, right? It doesn't push your limits to see mm. what you're capable of. So to me, I think uh, growth for anybody, not just me, comes from putting yourself in great discomfort to the point where you're able to handle it without getting crushed by it, right? Mm. And once you're able to handle it, then naturally that becomes your baseline. Uh, so how do you, in, in my case, you know, what you're asking is, how do you uh, instill that in others that, that you surround yourself with? And the answer is uh, you have a very human-to-human conversation and understanding what their desires are, where they're headed, and what do they truly want out of this? Uh, ultimately, the common thread tends to be growth. Uh, the specifics of what that is depends on the stage at which they are. They are, but I think having a very frank and uh, candid conversation is absolutely essential. Uh, it is like climbing a mountain, so you ought to know them, know your team really well in what is it that they want and how they need to grow to to make that happen. Yeah, I imagine there's so many parallels, right? And what what you say about seeking discomfort, I mean, to me, that's kind of, you know, really interesting in the context of innovation, because it seems like that is sort of the crux of innovation, right? You're pushing into areas which are not known, which are not comfortable. And what you what comes out of that is really the, you know, what ends up being the, you know, the, the, the innovation or the idea. Yeah, well, like a, it's it's a very uh, it's a very uncomfortable and uh, tough process, right? As you know, Jeff, you've seen so many of these, and um, but I think there's beauty if you can if you can be comfortable with that discomfort, right? It's a little bit of an oxymoron, but uh, I think that's really where one uh, truly thrives. Yeah. So so then so let's uh, circling back to Oculive then. What um, so you come in? What were kind of the key challenges, and and as you sort of brought that product forward, what what were the key challenges you had to overcome? Yeah, Oculive uh, was an interesting story because um, you know dry eye disease is a, a neuropathology essentially. With age, um, your uh, corneal uh, cells and uh, the nervous system as it connects to the cornea and the tear glands and the myobum degenerate over time. And there are different etiologies for it, but uh, basically it's uh, slow over time. Uh, you lose your lacrimal function, right? The entire lacrimal function. And our approach there was um, to, to look at a neuromodulation or electrical way to trigger the gland, which was essentially a scientific breakthrough of cells, right? I mean, it's just a very clever way to essentially tickle the glands to produce and uh, recreate and reroute the, the roadmap between the nerves and the gland. So so that was fantastic, a lot of momentum. It started off as an implant, which required a different set of skills. And then when we realized the same nerve can be stimulated through the nasolacrimal duct on the, on the nose uh, of the ethmoidal nerves, then that became... Uh, home health company at that point. So we had to quickly, I think that was the greatest challenge is how do you pivot when you've started off and everybody's invested in the uh, class three device to to the home health and the nuances of that is uh, very, very different. It's a different world. Absolutely. I mean, that's uh, that must have been really interesting because I think um, in our business, I think one of the Achilles heels is you sell your investors on on a on a product concept uh and you and it can be difficult to step back and actually say this is not the right path anymore we have to go this direction and all the money that you investors spent well you know might be helpful from a technology standpoint but it's not going to be helpful to, to where we're gonna go how how difficult the conversation was that with the investors yeah, I think uh, Michael was our CEO and uh, just a terrific guy, very brilliant. And, and uh, he spun us out out of Stanford. And uh, I think he managed the board and the transition quite well uh, to a point where there were a lot of interested uh, acquirers for this uh, technology to to commercialize. And then Allegan ultimately ended up acquiring 
us. So I stayed on for about a year and a half to uh, transition that through the tech transfer and the operational transfer. And uh, then uh, sort of moved on outside of iCare, as you know. Yeah. And maybe just to 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 um, close your to put a period on the Oculeve experience. So what happened is is that product out in the marketplace now, or what what's been the the destiny of the Oculeve technology? Yeah, ultimately the technology works, and we got it approved. Um, and there's plenty of clinical study on this too. But unfortunately, in the hands of a large pharma. Um, my sense is I think it's that the world of med tech is different. So it is currently not commercially available, but hopefully they revive it. It's, yeah. it's up on them and uh, their interest. I wonder if, you know, it's, I think some something that we struggle with uh, as an industry, or, and I imagine this is particularly acute in large uh, companies, is, you know, when it goes beyond the technological innovation and going through sort of the existing pathways that are well known, where it requires real business model innovation, and you tell me if I'm off base here, but um, but but when it requires real business model innovation, that maybe requires a new way of thinking about how you sell a product or whatever. That our you know our vision can our vision is <laughs> probably <laughs> a good word here, but um, it can be a little bit uh, stunted, right? In terms of um, how we approach it, do you think it's it, that's one of the things that is prevented Allergan from pursuing this is more the business model innovation aspect? Yeah, well, absolutely. I think sorry about the puns here, but not only is it uh, vision related, but it's also one of short sightedness, right? Yeah. Is uh, we want immediate results. That's the sort of ecosystem we live in. Mm -hmm. And while the long game and uh, business model innovation may take some time, but be much more sustainable, uh, economical, socially responsible in the long run. But unfortunately, I think certain incentives don't always allow that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you, you again, you you coming out of uh, um, university, you have two successes under your belt, and. Um, and you look around and and t tell us what you were thinking at the time and 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 maybe how you thought about uh, starting Koya. Yeah, yeah, thank you, uh, Jeff. And I think uh, one thing to note is uh, success is a function of uh, the the people you surround yourself with, also the weather, right? like in a mountaineering, right? You might be mentally, physically ready and capable, but if the weather doesn't allow, mm -hmm. you're not going to summit, right? So um, I think success is uh, very relative. <laughs> Luck has a lot to do with it, right? And I think that's to me, is like weather. So um, for me, coming out of Allegan, um, I was uh, taking on some board roles at that point to get more broader exposure in uh, disease states. I was on the board of a pain company and uh, another... Uh, eye care company and looking to see what I wanted to do next. I took a break, went and climbed another mountain. I uh, got some inspiration from that. And uh, uh, basically, this was Mount Rainier. It was a beautiful uh, mm -hmm. mountain to climb. And and then uh, my dad was uh, going through retirement at that point. So he was 76, I believe, and uh, retired, you know, never really rested a day in his life, as you can imagine, right? And uh, that generation has just got from a different cloth. And unfortunately, within a week of retirement, he was diagnosed with with uh, prostatic cancer. Mm -hmm. And so, so obviously, the family comes together. My sister is an oncologist. Uh, this is calling up, uh, you know, the world experts in urology. He gets the uh, treatment uh, for it, which is surgery followed by radiation, and ends up with uh, lymphedema, which is the um, it turns out it's a very common side effect of pelvic cancer and breast cancer treatment. Uh, so to me, that was news. I didn't know anything about lymphedema. I asked my uh, sister, what's going on here? And he said, well, they removed a lot of his lymph nodes, which is uh, very typical. I see this with my patients all the time um, and and full stop. So, so mm -hmm. for me, there was a lot of questions that was coming into my head. Uh, I think bias as an innovator I was asking why. Why isn't anything done? How frequent is it? Why is this happening? What is going on here? So I think the more questions I asked, the more obvious it was for me that uh, th there is something here. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so, so, so tell us then, I mean, it's, you know, you recognize the problem. How did you go about uh, starting uh, Koya? What was the process and how did you think about the innovation process? Yeah, so, you know, questions of sort of curiosity is sort of where I began and uh, lucky to have access. So one of the first things I did was uh, I called two uh, leading experts in this ecosystem. Uh, they took my call. They were crazy enough to take a meeting. Uh, one was uh, Stanley Roxon. Uh, he's uh, um, the godfather of lymphedema. He's at Stanford today, just a terrific human being. Uh, the other one was Jane Armour, who's uh, also on the leading advisory boards uh, for breast oncology uh, related lymphedema. So to them, I went to them and I told them my experience with this and I was asking them what's happening here. Um, and I had a series of questions to, to dissect. And I think their point was um, there are two major causes here for, for edema, uh, which is uh, your lymphatic uh, world is, it turns out, is a very complex world that uh, most of healthcare hasn't been paying attention to. Uh, it is changing now, but it's a very important function where your skin, for example, you have dermal collectors in it, which feeds your lymph system, and your lymph system is what uh, keeps you ultimately healthy. So when you have uh, both from a removal of toxins and also addressing uh, from an immunology standpoint to attack any foreign body, it's your lymph system that does it, right? It's a lymphocyte that comes in, uh, essentially stops the whole uh, macrophage response. Um, so sorry to sort of go deep into it, but the point here is to me, this was all new in learning about the lymphatic system. Uh, they apparently only sp spend about a paragraph for uh, your MD, uh, really educating the physicians on the lymph system. And that, that needs to change. Um, everybody knows there is a heart that pumps arterial flow to the organs and uh, venous uh, back into the lungs to oxygenate. But what majority of them may not know is your lymphatic system is, is there, just next to the venous system. Uh, interchanging constantly, constant interplay between venous and lymphatic. The only difference is I think the lymphatic is a, almost like a primordial heart with valves that are stimulated through the external muscle. So, so instead of having you know more evolved cardiomyocytes, you have the muscle that pushes the lymph system. And you can't visually see it, and the rate of movement is a lot slower, uh, but it surely drains and surely picks up all the uh, proteins and the denatured proteins and dead cells basically to clear so yeah. it's a, to me it was a eye-opening and how important it is uh, not just from a disease state of lymphatic and uh, chronic venous disease but also for general health and uh, basic health of a human being yeah and of course there's a there's a you know there was a company out there a tactile medical uh, uh trying to address this uh, as well so how did you what are the things you noticed were shortcomings of existing therapy and and how did you apply that to coming up with something different at Koya? Yeah, so treatment today, uh, if you look at the spectrum of how care is given, uh, the, typically the patient that uh, suffers from chronic lymphatic or chronic venous health uh, goes to their physician, right? So in this case, either their oncologist or their um, venous uh, docs or vascular docs, they typically either prescribe some treatments like uh, compression garments, which are uh, very difficult to don, but they essentially protect uh, and apply pressure is what they do. But again, once again, very difficult to put on, so compliance is very low. Uh, the second uh, sort of option out there are pumps, uh, which is one of the pumps that you mentioned is, uh, by the company you mentioned. And those are uh, pneumatic compression devices, uh, very much uh, similar to like a CPAP machine where you have um, essentially air being generated through a pump and it pumps into the chambers uh, which inflate and deflate to apply sequential pressure to push the fluid out. Uh, just like uh, dialysis or any clearance that your body needs, uh, externally what this assimilates is, uh, is your MLD or your manual lymphatic drainage, uh, which is the third option for these patients, which is uh, trained therapists would apply um, lymphatic um, drainage, which would uh, be done depending on the patient on a very frequent basis. So the burden of um, 
you know, one needing to see a therapist frequently is already high. And, and these caregivers are obviously overworked. Uh, there are 10,000 of them in the U.S. So the need is uh, pretty, pretty high and they're overbooked. So pumps, what they do is uh, they have been around since the 80s and um, they help with uh, the drainage. And there's plenty of studies they've performed that show that this works. But there are certain issues with these pumps. In fact, I bought my dad uh, one of these pumps. And his first response was, like, I'm still young. Why are you tying me down? It was interesting to mm -hmm. see his response. He's an active guy. He's constantly tinkering. Uh, I can kind of see where my <laughs> antsiness also comes from, I guess. But uh, but to him, it was like, don't tie me down. Uh, that's basically what he said. And he mm -hmm. refused to use it, uh, even though he knew that would benefit him. So that sort of sparked the idea to say, what if we could make this a wearable, uh, truly connect wearability, connectivity, ease of use, and have our uh, have our patients be mobile and enable their life. You know, they've already been through a lot with cancer and they've sort of faced mortality, and uh, now you're telling them this advice: you've got to use it every every day, or a garment, and your life is going to be burdensome, and you're going to be tied down. Uh, so I think there's a huge psychosocial component here beyond the physiological aspect as well. So we uh, innovated in that area, and uh, we're proud to say, you know, we've come a long way with an innovation there that's uh, now available for folks with this disease. Yeah, it's incredible. And I'm curious, you know, you, you saw sort of the transition at Oculive from something that was an implant to being used in more of the home health arena and now your your you know your product is also a home-based product and how how much room is there for business model innovation with koya or or is it pretty well laid out uh in terms of how you're going to go to market with this no i think there's always uh, room for innovation right as you know i think healthcare is uh, littered with um problems to be solved across the board uh, so there's always room. Uh, in our case, uh, the innovation here is uh, Dayspring, which uses shape memory alloy that's weaved into a garment or a clothing. So it involves textile, involves electronics, it involves mechanical, all of these, and software too, right? So we've got experts in our team that are um, that are come that have come together to make this happen. And there aren't too many examples of uh, connected wearable devices that are cutting edge in this sense, um, that are also therapeutic applications, which actually treats the condition. So very difficult to do, uh, but the team's done it. And uh, with, with that, uh, what we're looking to do is bring that product to market. So we've done seven uh, clinical studies that we're, that we're basically starting to publish those. And uh, our goal is to be first-line therapy for this disease and not wait till that patient is uh, fibrotic, end stage, uh, with ulcers, ready for amputation, that type of uh, ecosystem, right? Because the disease itself is a progressive disease without a cure, uh, both on the lymphatic and venous side, as you know. And it starts off with edema, but then eventually leads to fibrosis and cellulitis and ulceration and then amputation if you don't address it. So the potential business model innovation that we're interested in is saying if the incidence is 1.4 million Americans um, and a similar proportion worldwide that go through, and that's incidence for you, then every single one should be getting the treatment they deserve. Right? So what is stopping us from doing that? And that's the question we ask. Yeah. And what do you think is, you know, I'm, I'm, I think we're, we're now fully into the age of consumerism in medical devices. You only have to turn on your TV to see an Inspire commercial or Abbott is very active. Axonics uh, just uh, started with uh, their commercial efforts. So is it, is it making the public aware or are there other ways to really uh, get over that hurdle? I love the examples you chose. Uh, maybe we should add an in our to the mix too, I guess. <laughs> uh, I think the, it's an interesting time uh, we live in where the awareness, the information uh, is more readily available to the person that needs it the most. So if you look at the an onion example or a kernel example, right? I think the person that is impacted is the patient. 
uh, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. And then the caregiver, then the broader physician group, and then of course the pair, uh, which is uh, also also intertwined in all of this. And then we have the company and the products and the process in how you sell uh, to to that ultimate stakeholder or stakeholders in this in this case. Um, unfortunately, the patient typically is not involved in a lot of the uh, choices, especially when it comes to intervention, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but in in cases like this, where they can get their treatment at home, they're absolutely involved in the choice they make. So so. I think that is a very important aspect of um, addressing their need and their uh, treatment at the end of the day at home um, at their own convenience, which then influences uh, buying behavior as well as the model. Uh, but in our case, you know, we're very fortunate that, uh, Jeff, we were able to establish uh, five new codes uh, for this category. So we've established a new category uh, for home health devices, which is rarely given, as you know. So we were very fortunate to have uh, great conversations with CMS uh, in this regard. And our leadership was able to convince the the group that, yes, this is a category that belongs and it's here to stay. And uh, just about a month ago, they also established a benefit category decision as well as uh, payment for this, which now enables us to uh, have the value conversation with the payers um, as we go. So we're just getting started uh, very early in our commercialization process. But to your point, I think uh, the foundation is what we're building now. Yeah. Well, it's super exciting. And I'm, I'm curious, um, as you so, you know, you moved from being the COO at Oculive, you're CEO of, of Koya, founder of Koya. What, what are we able to draw things from the you know your experiences with uh, with Oculive and AVS, and sort of looking at other CEOs, and you've you've now been on the board of other companies as well. So I'm I'm curious how much you're able to draw from which you've incorporated into your own leadership style um, with uh, at Koya. Yeah, I think the that's a great question. Um, the the primary difference is I think more gray hair as a CEO. I think. <laughs> right. Uh, but but in all seriousness, I think uh, one thing it's this growth left uh, that I had to pursue, and uh, there was definitely growth uh, in, in that. And the primary difference I see in myself is uh, one of uh, giving counsel while I was a COO uh, to seeking counsel as a CEO. I think uh, it's, it's all the intelligence you derive from your leaders, right? And and trying to make sense of it all as you navigate the future for the collective group. So you're sort of relying on them to tell you what the options are as uh, experts across the team. Uh, It's not the other way around. So I think that's a fundamental shift. Yeah, that's such an interesting perspective. Um, uh, You know, and I think, you know, sometimes I see with a lot of CEOs where, you know, they're using the board as an example, uh, as more of, you know, something to report to, when in reality, the board is really a set of free resources that you have at your disposal to get different perspectives from and to really problem solve with. And I think if treated like that, it, it really becomes like a whole different organism in the company as opposed to, you know, a, a governance, a purely a governance organism. So I'm curious if that's as you've worked with more and more venture capitalists, um, uh, you know, how you've seen that evolve for yourself. Well said. I think uh, you hit the nail on the head, right? I think uh, as a as a leader, uh, we should uh, basically get alignment across the board, both internally and externally. Uh, seeking counsel is really the goal. Uh, it's not one of uh, a constipated expression of governance uh, for perceived uh, perceived uh, goals or uh, anything of that sort. So I think mm-hmm. there needs to be a level of maturity. And if you're fortunate enough to have that in your board, then you can really seek counsel to navigate the future we all want, right? I think ultimately everybody's aligned to growth. Um, in our case, we're lucky to have seasoned leaders that uh, have gone through various scenarios to be prepared to for this uh, 
roller coaster ride, right? In a in a very keep your head cool type of approach. So we've got uh, Jan Garfinkel from Arboretum. I know you know her well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ali Borlein from her experience as a founder and CFO for Inogen, and Joe Biller, uh, who's with three by five and has plenty of experience seeing a great companies built. Uh, last but not the least, I think is our chairman uh, Josh Balsell, mm-hmm. uh, who is my personal counsel as well. And every CEO needs one. Yeah, uh, it's terrific. You got a great, great group of, uh, around you. So it's um, it says a lot. I think just picking picking your partners well. I mean, I can understand a lot of entrepreneurs who are out there, and you know, they they just need the money, right, to keep their their <laughs> their effort going. But if they can also step back and say, who's going to really help? be you know the most helpful because it is more than the dollars it's uh it's about picking the right partners um uh so hats off for assembling such a great group yeah no thank you thank you we're very lucky and we don't take that for granted now yeah and you know i'm you know maybe the last area i'd love to get some perspective because i know it's had a important influence in your life is the role of of meditation so i wonder if you could speak to that and how it's helped you as a as a leader and um and also just as a you know as a person and a and an entrepreneur what what can you talk a little bit about how you got started with it and and the role it's played for you yeah and again that's probably my own bias and everybody finds uh finds clarity in their own way and um, the, the way i'm finding mine is uh you know i've been meditating for over a decade now, uh, I think fundamentally what it's done uh, for me is uh, is have the ability to see things clearly without uh, w- without necessarily a strong bias, let's say, right, and and have a deeper sense of curiosity of what is happening to both you and what needs to happen uh, for the desired path going forward. So I think for me, it has given great clarity in having. Um, having looking at things the right way and i think one thing jeff uh, that is uh, very clear is uh, that uh, the human health uh, to me is uh, something that is a great pull to to advance that to to me it all starts with health uh, if we take that uh, for granted uh, i think um, some of us do when we're young but as we age uh, we realize the importance of it uh, health is is number one, right? Only if you have health uh, would you be able to pursue all the things you pursue, right? Entertainment to living your life, let's say, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, I think it's a great privilege. Uh, meditation helps with the clarity of enabling that for fellow human beings uh, before my time is done here, right? So I think to, to me, I'm very lucky to have the opportunity to, to surround myself with folks that uh, care. Yeah. Well, it's perfectly said, and uh, it's been a terrific chance to get to know you better and um, um, to also get to understand uh, all the remarkable things you've been involved with. So I can't thank you enough for uh, for taking the time to uh, to join us this month. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's a privilege. Great. Thanks, Andy.